Well, as part of uh, the Compelled by Grace vision, they uh, built me a really nice uh, pulpit that rises out of the stage here, and uh, it doesn't work. And so, uh, <laughs> which I, I really do believe is God's justice. So I, if any of you have been praying for that, I, I join you in that because it keeps me humble. I still have my music stand, and, uh, and, and I like it. Our uh, Cactus Campus and our Mountain Valley Campus are, are joining us right now for our time in the Word. And let me just make one quick comment before we pray, and that's it. You know, this is, as many of you know, the culmination of our, our uh, much of our Compelled by Grace vision, uh, being the Shea Worship Center here. And, you know, we have five different uh, venues that meet on three different campuses. And when you think about it, uh, every one of them in the last uh, three years has gotten some either new or renovated space. I mean, it really has been a special thing. Uh, Cactus Campus, uh, we poured a lot of money into a few years back and, and gave them a beautiful uh, worship space. And then the uh, town center, we suck a lot of money into recently, and the venue will now be in there. Certainly our chapel uh, has, has a beautiful space over there. And then Mountain Valley, when we merged with them a year ago, uh, we did some real updates to the worship center there, and then now here. And as you're going to hear today, um, in one sense, this is the culmination of much of our vision, as our, our chairman talked about a few minutes ago, but in a very real way, and you guys were expecting this, it's also the beginning. It's really the start of what we have been envisioning and praying toward, and that is a new season of ministry, maybe even hopefully some revival uh, in our lives and in the lives of lost ones around us, in which God might use us in a, in a very heightened way. And that's really what we're looking for and praying for. But we have to understand who we are. We have to know who we are, and we have to be solid and confident in who we are. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. So let's pray. God, thank you for uh, our church. Thank you for Scottsdale Bible Church, which as we're going to see today is simply a local expression of what you designed 2,000 years ago to be the vehicle that you want to work through known as the church. And so I pray, God, that as we open up your word, your book right now, that if Christians have been doing for thousands of years, that you might now uh, speak to us by your Holy Spirit and empower us in our minds and our hearts to receive truth into our lives. And then, Lord, give us the will and, and, and even the power in our lives to live this out and to not shy away from that which we know to be true. May we trust you. May we love others. May we be focused upon your Son, Christ, now, in whose name we pray and we all say together, amen. So let me begin with a very, very simple question, but I need you to really wrestle with this today, and that is, what is the church? What is the church? But when you strip away all the trappings, when you get right down to the core of it, kind of like peeling the, the layers of an onion away, what essentially is this thing that you and I call the church? In other words, how would you define it if you were talking to a friend who had no clue what church is and why you even go to one? What would you tell them that church in essence is? And as you're thinking about that, let me share very briefly a few things that church is not, just so that we're all clear on what we're not talking about. A few things that you and I need to jettison from our mind that many people tend to say that church is today. So the first thing is, is that church is not a building on the corner, right? Give me a head now that you all understand that. I mean, we're tempted to think that way because uh, when Muslims go to worship, they go to a mosque. When Jews go to worship, they go to their temple. And so people think that when Christians go to worship, they go to their church. 
And so we tend to see church as a building on a corner, a bunch of bricks and mortar. I, I hear Scottsdale Bible Church people say this all the time. I go to Scottsdale Bible Church. You know, that church over at Miller or, and Shea or one of its other campuses. Hey, we got a really nice campus, three big wooden crosses out front, multiple buildings, a cafe, a youth center, a quaint chapel, a, a multicolored children's ministry center that doesn't match the chapel. That's my church. <laughs> That's what I hear people say quite often. And so when you describe your church to those around you, you end up describing a building. Let's not do that any longer. This is simply a facility. Cactus is simply a facility. Mountain Valley is simply a facility. It's not, in essence, the church. Now, another thing church is not is it's not a bunch of programs. Again, we're tempted to see it that way. Many of you were handed a bulletin on the way in today, and in your bulletin are a bunch of programs. We call them ministries. Things for you to do, classes for you to attend, and things for you to get involved in, and, and they're all man-made. <laughs> they're all things that we have designed, rightly so, to try to bring people together and to do God's work here. Uh, but at the end of the day, get this, I'm going to show you today that um, there have been churches historically that didn't have any programs at all, and they were still the church. And we're going to answer how that can be. Before we get to that, notice a third thing that church is not, and that's that it is not a, a, a bunch of moral do's and don'ts. In other words, many people today, especially those who don't go to church, kind of equate church as a storehouse for morality, right? In other words, you go to church to get it right. You go to church for this list. You can, you can't, you can, you can't. And that's how they see church. That's how they see you and me. And don't get me wrong, the Bible obviously talks about morality and values, and the church trumpets these values as we should. But at the end of the day, that's not the heart and soul of what church is. Jesus is going to show us something very different. And then very quickly, lastly, I think we all know this, church is not a social club, right? I mean, again, I hear Christians say that. Come to my church, you'll meet a lot of people. We've got a great singles group and seniors group and men's ministry and women's ministry and, 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 and young people's ministry and all that stuff. And, and the connotation is, is that you can find your date here. You can find your mate here. You can find somebody. And, and that might happen. I met my wife at church. But that doesn't mean at the end of the day that church exists just to meet social needs. We, we have much more of a rich reason for meeting than that. And, and so it's not a building. It's not a bunch of programs. It's not a storehouse for morality. It's not a social club. It might have elements of these things. But when you peel the onion away, none of these things are in essence church. And so again, the question becomes then, well then what is it? I mean, if we're talking to one of our curious friends, what would we tell them? I want to give you a working definition of church right now. And believe it or not, our working definition is going to follow right along the pathway of the stated vision of Scottsdale Bible Church. And obviously this is not by coincidence, but it's by design because the vision that we've adopted for our church contains the definition of church according to the Bible. And here it is. I'm going to submit to you today that church is a community of Christ followers. A community of Christ followers who are marked by an unwavering faith in that same Christ, in Jesus himself, and then an unconditional love for everyone else. This, in essence, is everything that we need to build upon. 
a community of Christ followers marked by an unwavering faith and an unconditional love. So notice a few things about that definition. First, don't miss that the church we're describing here is people. The church, in essence, is people. It's not programs, it's not buildings, it's not a storehouse for morality. It is people, a community of people. So outside of the head of our church, who is Jesus... The Bible always describes the church in organic terms made up of individuals, people. Jesus taught us this. He said in Matthew 18, 20, For where two or three come together in my name, there I am among them. And what theologians argue is that what Jesus is saying there is that when two or three believers in Christ come together, he smacks a label on that and says, that's the church. That's what I want to inhabit. That's where I want to be and pour out my power. And so in the essence and core, the church is about people. But notice that it's not just any people. Notice that the church is a certain kind of people. Now, this is really important. It's redeemed people. It's a community of Christ followers. So it's people who have been touched in a powerful and awesome way by the love of Jesus Christ. It's people who have put their faith and trust only in him and as a result have experienced eternal salvation and the forgiveness of all of their sins. And so these same Christ followers are now on the road to healing and repentance every day as they learn what it means to take up their cross and follow their Savior. So we're talking about changed people, not perfect people, but changed people who claim to have had a supernatural encounter with God in such a way that they are now different and hopefully will never be the same again. Don't miss this. It's a community of Christ followers that we are talking about here. And so when you start to get this, you see then that essentially the Bible is correct then when it says that the church is a group that has been called out of something and then been called to something. You see, the word church in the Bible actually occurs quite often in the New Testament. It's the Greek word ecclesia, and it appears 116 times in the New Testament. And the word ecclesia at its core means to be called out of something, the connotation meaning that you are called into something. And so you and I are called from a world and life of increasing sinfulness and separation from God. That's what we had before we knew Christ. But we're now called to a life of unwavering faith in Jesus Christ and unconditional love for each other and then a commission to go out and tell others about this same faith and love that they can find in Christ. And God wants that group of people to come together to be called out of the world on a regular basis. And that's what he labels his church. And so maybe now you can see, that's why church is not a building. It's not policies and procedures. It's not a bunch of programs. And it's not a social club. Though it might have elements of all of that. But all that's window dressing compared to the heart of it, which is a called out group of people. And I've told you guys this before, and this always makes me smile, but when you think about it, it's going to be then all kinds of people that come together to form the church, amen? Like all kinds of people, who I've argued that if it wasn't for Jesus, probably would have very little in common with each other, or very little reason to be together. 
So as I've joked before, but I'm also not joking, and this is why it bothers some of you. I've said before that if it wasn't for Jesus, I wouldn't be friends with most of you. And it's really true. I mean, except for you car guys and people like that, I, I wouldn't. Because here's how I know that's true. Before I knew Jesus, I wasn't friends with most of you. And the reality is I had a whole different group of friends. I had my drinking buddies and my fraternity buddies and things like that. But then when I came to Christ, I still retained those friendships. But the richer ones became now with a group of people that called me brother. And I called them sister. And we all started to see each other as part of the same family because we shared the same Savior. But when I got down to the nitty-gritty of their lives, that was about the only thing we had in common. And that is the church in many, many, many ways. Uh, the church, in all of her imperfection and even all of her hypocrisy, because nobody ever overcomes sin this side of heaven, is this. We're a community of followers of Jesus Christ called together to be an entity that trusts in Christ no matter what and that knows how to love others with a head-turning love that just might ha help them become interested in Jesus as well. If you're doubting this at all, look at how Paul the Apostle summed it up in Galatians 5, uh, verse 6. He says, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. There's your summary right there. The only thing that counts is faith in Jesus Christ expressing itself through love for each other and even those outside the fold. And so every program that we have here at Scottsdale Bible Church, every building we build, every sermon we preach, every Sunday school class we attend, every small group that ensues, every Bible study we partake in, every service project we do, think about all the things that we do, gang. It all needs to somehow go back to the core of what church is, and that is becoming a community of Christ followers who are marked by an unwavering faith in Jesus and an unconditional love for each other. And yet when we do this, when we stop playing games and get that this is what church is, look out because spiritual sparks begin to fly. God inhabits that kind of community and says, that's what I'm going to do my best work in. That's an entity on planet earth that I can use for my glory and purposes. Now, to add texture and grit to this rather clear definition and vision for the church, the Bible even takes this a step further and does some really cool things with this. Uh, the Bible actually gives us multiple word pictures or metaphors to help us further understand and even visualize in our mind's eye what the church might look like. So, for instance, as some of you know, the Bible uh, gives this analogy about church. It says it's like a human body in which you have a head and all the various parts of the body. And when you think of the church like a human body, Jesus is our head, so he does our thinking, he tells us what to do, uh, but all the other parts of the body <laughs> uh, become the different parts of the church. So some of you are going to be more hands type of people, some of you are going to be more feet type of people, uh, some of you are very much mouth type of people, and, and so <laughs> we, we all have different roles and purposes in the church, and it's like a human body. At another point, uh, Jesus likens the church to uh, a sheep, a bunch of sheep with a shepherd. Uh, so picture just a bunch of sheep being guided by a shepherd. And who's the shepherd in that analogy? Jesus. Um, if any of you said me, you need to leave right now because you got it wrong. It, it, it's Jesus. He is the shepherd and we're the sheep. And then there's other images as well. But my favorite word picture the Bible gives us 
of the church is that we are a beautiful bride who is being prepared for a final marriage someday to her groom. I want us to focus on that word picture. If you brought a Bible with you today or at Cactus and Venue, you have a Bible, I want you to open up to, I'm sorry, Cactus and Mountain Valley, I want you to open up to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 27. Ephesians 5, 25 to 27, and then we're also going to read verse 32. If you didn't bring uh, a Bible, it's on your outline in, in, in your bulletin, and then I'm also going to have it up here on the screen. As you're turning there, the context here, now don't miss this, is talking about a human marriage. Okay? A human marriage specifically is telling husbands how to love their wives. But halfway through the very first verse, verse 25, the focus shifts from a human marriage to the church. Follow along and watch what happens. Ephesians 5, verses 25 to 27, then we'll skip down to verse 32. Husbands, love your wives. Now here's the switch. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that she so that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word then give me a click here thanks that he might present to himself the church in all her glory having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she would be holy and blameless then skip down to verse 32 this mystery is great but i am speaking with reference to christ and the church. Whoa! What a very simple, but hopefully you're going to see, profound analogy that's being put forth here. Simply put, that the church is the bride and Jesus is the groom. And the key to understanding this passage, and like Paul overdoses on different words here to describe this, is that God wants his church to be beautiful and to be pure, and to be attractive to Jesus the groom. So it uses words like no stain, no wrinkle, holy, blameless. To use the vernacular today, God's looking for a 10. He's looking for a 10 in his church, in you and me. And to fully understand this, you need to understand something else that theologians point out about this passage. Now this is very important. In one sense, God has already gotten us there. But in another sense, we have a ways to go. What do I mean by that? Well, if you look closely at the wording here in Ephesians 5, in one sense it says that because of what Christ did on the cross, he's already made us presentable to him. Amen? It says he might sanctify her having cleansed her already. So in one sense, in order for God to even want anything to do with us as the church, he's already cleansed us. That's why when people point out the imperfections of the church and say, well, obviously God doesn't want to use you, I go, "Ah, not so quick. He's forgiven us. He loves us. He's willing to put up with a lot in us. Why? Because of Jesus. And because God already has cleansed us in his sight and we have access to him. That's the already done part. But in another sense, we're still getting there. And that's the challenge here in this passage when it says that she would be holy and blameless you and I that's kind of like hey guys we need to rise up to that theologians call this the difference between positional righteousness and practical righteousness so on a positional level God already has us there he sees us this way so that we can be in his presence on a very practical level he knows that we have a ways to go 
But that's what he declares here, that we are the bride of Jesus Christ in kind of an engagement period right now, but there's going to be a final marriage someday, Revelation 19 through 21, in which we're going to be married to the Lamb who is Jesus. I call this the beautiful bride of Christ. It's the kind of bride that God is attracted to, and watch this, also then attracts a lost world through our love for Jesus. This is what we're to be, guys. Beautiful and attractive to Christ, but also relating to him in such a way that that beauty is seen by the world around us, and they go, I think I'd like some of that. And once you and I get this, the question obviously becomes, well, specifically and precisely then what does a beautiful Christ or beautiful bride of Christ look like? And what is it going to take? In other words, what specific ways does this community of Christ followers that we referenced earlier become the beautiful bride of Christ? What is it going to take? And in our time remaining, I want to share with you four things that God uses in his word to describe what a beautiful bride the church looks like, what you and I are shooting for from this point on as Scottsdale Bible Church with our various uh, congregations. And these are four things that will allow us to become beautiful in his sight. And I'm going to follow the acrostic pure, because Ephesians 5 is all about you and I being pure as the church. And here's what I'm going to suggest that pure stands for, and that is passionate spirituality, unconditional love, real relationships, and evident unity. These build one upon the other, gang. So we're going to walk through this right now. You don't want to miss this. It begins with the fact that God says a beautiful bride is passionate in her love for her groom, unconditional then in her love for each other, all the other invited guests. Uh, That stems from real relationships in which we get honest with each other And that results in an evident unity that the world cannot help but take note to. Notice first that trait of a beautiful bride is passionate spirituality. This is all over the Bible. Look at how uh, this one verse, give me a click here, uh, puts this to it. Look at Romans 12, 11. It says, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. You know, I love about that verse is that I, I know what the pushback is. I'm a lawyer's kid, so I always think, well, what's the pushback to this, this, this thing being stated here? And I know how some of you might think. You think, well, you know, easier said than done. It's really hard to keep your spiritual fervor when you're hurting or doubting or down in the dumps. You know what God's answer to that would be? You're right. It is hard to keep your spiritual fervor when you're down in the dumps. Do it anyways because the converse is worse. The converse is, is that when you're really down and that fire that was once lit in your soul becomes like a little ember and you blow that ember out or you let that ember go out, it's really hard to restart that thing. We can, we do it around here all the time, but it's a lot harder. It would have been much better if you had kept your spiritual fervor going, if you had kept your passion high even during the difficult times. And how do you do that? Well, look at how Peter teaches us this. Look at this verse, 1 Peter 3.15. He says, sanctify Christ. That word sanctify means separate Christ. Bring him into your set-apart world as Lord in your hearts. So that's how you do it. Even when you're in a difficult time, even when you're struggling in your faith, set apart Christ 
as Lord. Say, say to him, God, I'm on the ropes right now. I feel like getting out of the ring. I'm really hurting, but I'm not doing that. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. We tie a knot at the end of our rope, and we hang on for dear life. Now, you're starting to see how this fits into our vision. That's what unwavering faith is about. You say, I'm never giving up. I'm never, ever getting out of the ring with God. And again, if you do, there's grace, but it's a lot harder to get back in the ring. It'd be much better if we learned, as the Bible says, how to persevere and keep our passion high for Christ. You know, I, I never ask you guys to do something, as I've told you a thousand times, that I don't do for myself. And, and i got to tell you, there have been plenty of times in the last 34 years of being a Christian where I have felt like giving up. I, I have felt like just saying, yeah, that's the end of it. And I, and I told you a story recently. I see Kimmel's here with Darcy, and, and, I, and I love the story that Howard Hendricks used to tell. And I told you this a few weeks ago, but it's worth repeating of when Howard Hendricks was teaching at Dallas Seminary in the early days, and, and he just got mad at all the crud going on there and the politicking and all of that. And so one day he just said, I'm done. I'm done. I'm not going to be anymore at Dallas Seminary. And so he, he got up and he walked out of the classroom, walked out of his office, and he, and he walked down this long road. The, the, the walkway to the main drag there where Dallas Seminary is on. And he tells a funny story of how he looked right and then how he looked left. And, and he realized that he didn't have any place to go. <laughs> and so he walked right back into Dallas Seminary <laughs> and stayed for the next few decades and gutted it out. See, I, I think that's a great image of what you and I need to do with Jesus. It's okay to get to the end of your rope. It's okay to, to get to a point where you're struggling in your faith. It really is. It's okay to walk to the end of the walkway. But I beg you, when you do, look right and look left and ask yourself, where am I going to go? Ask what Peter asked when he felt like giving up. And Jesus said, are you two going to leave me? And he said, hey, who else has the words to eternal life? Well, what are you going to do? And then when you realize that you're really not going to do anything, turn around and start that long trek back up the walkway and God will be meeting you there he actually was with you the whole time the first thing we need to do is keep our spiritual passion high now right on the coattails of this uh, part of being the pure bride of Christ is that we then have unconditional love for those around us uh, Peter could not have been more clear. I actually have a love-hate relationship with this verse here. Look at 1 Peter 4.8. You'll see why I have a love-hate relationship. He says, above all. Pause right there. Say that with me. Above all. Again, above all. I looked up those two words in the Greek. You know what they literally mean? Above all. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. And this is the part that I <laughs> I just don't know if I like, because love covers over a multitude of sins. You're saying, why don't you like that? Because when you understand what that's really saying, golly gee, I don't like this verse. You know what it's saying? It's, I'll pick on Kimmel. It's saying that if Kimmel says something to me that really hurts me and really wounds me, and I go to Tim and I do the right thing and say, Tim, you know what you said really hurt me and wounded me. And I even, I even do the counselor's trick. I use a lot of eye language, you know, and I don't attack him. And I, I be really humble about it. And he looks at me and says, really, really, that hurt you? You're such a wuss. I can't believe. I mean, what's wrong with you? You need therapy. That, so maybe that's Tim's response. You, you know what this passage says I'm to do right there? I'm to say, well, I didn't get what I wanted from him. And I'm still hurt by him. But love covers over a multitude of sins. Jamie, let it go. 
loved him anyways. Even though he doesn't see it, even though he doesn't receive it, even though you've tried, even though he was the aggressor, love covers over a multitude of sins. Are you feeling challenged yet? <laughs> see, see, that's why when, when I say to people that, you know, that the hardest thing in our sanctification in Christ is to really learn how to love those around us. Some people look at me and they go, that's it? Really, that's it? I go, no, you don't understand. You are to love those around you in such a way that you are the best forgiver, you're the most patient, you're the most caring. You don't yell at them. You don't do things like that. I mean, that's the challenge. I think that's why a lot of churches tend to become legalistic. You want my opinion on this? Because it's a lot easier to obey the rules than to love somebody around you. Amen? It's really true. I'd rather you give me five rules or ten rules of things that I'm to avoid and do. Don't drink. Don't smoke. Don't play cards. Don't go to R-rated movies. Don't do those things. Come to church, attend three Bible studies, tithe 10% of the gross, and you are in. I'd love that. I can do that. But now when you tell me that my daily job is to put up with you and to be patient with you and to love you and, and to raise my kids in a grace-based home that's also really firm and truth-telling and sacrificial, I mean, I'm going, whoa, really? Really? And then the Bible pulls the fast one on us and says, yeah, really, because that is how God treats you. He has loved you with that kind of grace. He has loved you with that kind of agape love. And you are now to love like that. So here's my challenge question to you. Do you judge more or do you love more in your life? See, Christians, they are known for our judging. <laughs> and we even, we even use a different word. We say, no, I'm not, I'm not a judger. I'm a discerner. I just discern really well. <laughs> oh, really? Well, your discerning is getting in the way of your loving. And so are you judging more or are you discerning more? About a decade ago, I was in my office in Cleveland and um, studying for my, my sermon, and uh, the phone rang, it was my sister. And, and, and my sister and I have always had a little bit of a, uh, of a set, set times a sandpaper relationship, you know, but we've, we've grown a lot in our, in our relationship, but we still didn't see each other a ton. She lived about an hour and a half away, and on this day, she was in crisis, and it was a Friday. I was getting ready for my sermon. She said, I really need to see you. So I dropped everything. I jumped in my car. I drove, we met halfway. I drove 45 minutes south of Cleveland there. And uh, she was really struggling with some things in her personal life and uh, that would have significant consequences in years to come. And it was weird because as we were talking, at one point she said to me, I kid you not, I, I, she said to me, you know, I, I didn't know who to call. And even though we don't see each other a ton, um, I called you because you're the least judgmental person I know. <laughs> I remember thinking, you don't know me very well. <laughs> I thought, I, I can't wait to tell Kim that one. I mean, she's going she's gonna to laugh all night. You know, my kids are going to go, really? Your sister's? I mean, I, I just, I, I'm not usually seen like that. And then it hit me, and this is really the point, is I thought, well, compared to the people in her life, I am. I mean, she felt very trapped in a verbally abusive marriage. She felt trapped in a toxic religious community that she was in, and and all of that, and I thought, you know, compared to that, I guess I am that way. And maybe that's what we are to be. We're not to be perfect. I know we're going to struggle with things, and we do have a hard road before us because we're not supposed to judge or we're supposed to love, but we are supposed to be discerning. And I mean, it gets complicated. But maybe at the end of the day, what God says is that at least compared to everybody else <laughs> in somebody's life, you were seen as golden. You were seen as the safe one. 
You are seen as the one that they want to go to when everything goes south. I, I think that's what unconditional love is. This is only built upon real relationships. Some of you are wondering what that is. Uh, let me describe a real relationship to you. In the very first Christian church, give me a click here, guys, in Acts chapter 2, where they had 3,000 people who just came to Christ. So it's the first documented mega church in all of the Bible. 3,000 people in Jerusalem. They were wondering, how do they do church? And in Acts 2, verses 41 through 47, they describe what church is for them. And look at verse 46. It says, every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts, because many of them were Jewish, so they met in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad, now, now dial into this, and sincere hearts. That, that word sincere is actually a really hard word to interpret from the Greek. The, the Greek says this. The Greek says that this word is probably best translated, but it wouldn't work if you translate it this way, as an unfolded heart. Because what the Greek is getting at there is that the opposite of this sincere heart is a heart that has a lot of folds in it, a duplicitous heart, a folded heart. And folds are places that you can hide things, right? Folds are places where you can tuck something away so that nobody else sees it. And so what it's describing here in this very first century church is that they had an unfolded heart with each other. They weren't hiding anything from each other. They were simple, is one of the translations. They're simple hearts or a sincere heart. It's a WYSIWYG, what you see is what you get kind of heart. It's describing a real relationship. I want you to think of all the people that Jesus interacted with and how he had real relationships. Nicodemus, when he came to him at night and said, dude, what is up with your theology? And Jesus had a very honest conversation with this Jewish leader about what born again means. Or how about Peter when he was denying Jesus and needed to be restored and he was wrestling with the guilt of that. And Jesus has met him in the honesty and, and rigor of relationship. My favorite is the man in Mark 9 who had a demon-possessed son and Jesus says, well, I can, I can heal your son, but you have to believe. And do you remember what the man says? It's so real. He says, I believe. And then right away he says, help me in my unbelief. Whoa. You ever found yourself there? I believe, Lord, but I'm duplicitous. I, I'm complex. There's a part of me that, that doesn't believe, and I'm just going to lay that thing out before you. That's what this man does. You know what Jesus does with that? He says, okay, enough faith. Your son is healed. He appreciated the honesty. How about the woman at the well, the rich young ruler, Pilate? Jesus always got honest with people, and many times they got honest back. And so here's my question. We really got to wrestle with this one, guys, because this is so quintessential Scottsdale and Phoenix and all that. My question to you is, would you rather be honest or would you rather look good? Honest. I think some of you are wrestling with the answer to that question. I really do. And I get it. Because I tell you what, this is the town of looking good. It is. I mean, I'm like one of the fattest people in this town. I mean, this is like the town of looking good. It is. I, I, I mean, the, the, people get facelifts and tummy tucks, and I'm not going to describe the other things they do. And, you know, they're bike riding and playing tennis, and they're golfing every day. And, 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 and they, they have a smile on their face, and they, you know, and you say, how you doing? I'm living the good life, you know. And I'm like, really living the good life, you know. And I'm like, oh, my God, you don't have to shovel sunshine and things like that. I mean, all these things that we say. And I get it. We came here because it's warm, you know. My, of course, my dad says, he says, you do know the Indians moved away a couple hundred years ago, don't you? I mean, you know, 
Leave it to the white man to come to the desert and say, let's build a town, you know. But, but we like it here because we have air conditioning and we brought water in and it's a, it's, it's a beautiful land. I get that. But the reality is, is that this is the town of looking good. This is the town of denial. This is the town of hiding. As Daryl, our pastor for 25 years, said, this is Disneyland for adults. It is. And the downside of that is that it's very easy to forget that we live in a fallen world that is not our home, that we are just passing through, we are not to get too comfortable, and that there are a lot of hurting people out there. And they put on a smile and they look good, but they are desperate and they're dying inside. And they are dying for a real relationship from you. And if this place is not a place where we can't get real, then God have mercy on us. Because he won't use us. Part of being the pure bride of Christ it is knowing what it means to have a real relationship and allowing God to use us at that level. And then notice, lastly, is that this all leads then to evident unity. It says in John 17, when Jesus was praying for the church, meaning us, he says, I pray that they may all be, say it with me, one. And, and this is going to use some King James language because it's the original New American Standard Bible, which when they quoted Jesus went to King James type stuff. But even as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they may also be in us, that the world may believe that thou didst send me. But what I love about this passage, just really quick here so that you understand it, Jesus' prayer is that we would have an obvious unity built upon the Trinity. Did you catch that? Just as the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father and then they add the Spirit into that. We have that kind of unity, but it's a unity with a purpose so that the world may look at us and say, wow, I don't have that. What is up with you guys? And we get then and get a chance to describe the unity that we have because of Christ. And the only way we can do this, and you guys are getting better at this, is that we don't make mountains out of molehills. In other words, honestly, if any of you come up to me after today and say something critical about the sanctuary, um, I will have to love you. That will be a great challenge for me to do that. <laughs> but let's not do that because that doesn't breed unity. And we probably know the little thing that's wrong here and all of that. But isn't that just like Christians? Don't we tend to be that way, right? We, we, we can be in something as beautiful as this or at, at Cactus and Mountain Valley and our eye, eye immediately goes to what? The negative. And that just breeds so much disunity we don't even realize because it's a, I mean, it's, the Bible describes this spiritual gift of encouragement. I think sometimes some of us have the spiritual gift of discouragement. I really do. And the reality is, is that God wants us to be a church that knows how to major in the major, minor in the minors, so that we might have unity. So add it all up, gang. Part of what it means to be pure, add it all up, gang, part of what it means to be pure here is a passionate spirituality, an unconditional love, real relationships, and evident unity. Now, let's wrap this up. This is a huge day for Scottsdale Bible Church, for all of our venues and even our campuses. And the reason is, is because this is not just about the Shea Worship Center dedication, but it's really about a culmination, as Dave Hall mentioned earlier, of a three-year vision that's now coming to fruition that we call Compelled by Grace. And we're in the final stretch. We have a few things we need to do here. Uh, we need to finish our enrichment class wing. That will happen next month. We need to get going with some church planting efforts. We've set aside some funds for that. Uh, we need to finish our financial support. We'll be talking about that to you in a couple of weeks. But we are in the final stretch. And it was fascinating. I was at a 
breakfast with Dave the other day, and Dave is such a great chairman, and he asked the question that any chairman should ask at this point, but it was a question that I wasn't ready for and almost put me over the edge. And that's that he asked me just last week as we were coming to this final stretch, he said, so what's next? You know, <laughs> he goes, you know, what are we going to do now? You know, what's the vision for the next five or ten years? And I was like, oh, really? 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 You want? I, I, you see, we went through Vision 2010, then we spent a year on Grace, and then we did the 50th anniversary, and now three years on Compelled by Grace, and he wants to know what's next. That was my initial response to that. But I'm supposed to be loving, and so I, 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 I took it in stride, and, and honestly, that is the question he should ask, and here's my answer, is what I want us to do next, because I'm not really sure I want to enter and do another program, do you? I really don't want to. I, I want us to be the church. I want us to be the bride of Christ. I want us to function day in and day out as a community of Christ followers who are passionate about Jesus, who are unconditional in our love, who are real and authentic in all of our small groups, Bible studies, relationships, who are unified to the point that it's evident. And as I say so often, I really believe if we do that, God's going to enter into that, and we're going to look back on a time like this next season and say, only God, only God could have done that. But it was because we're the pure and set-apart bride of Christ. Maybe we will do a program, Dave. Maybe we will do something. I don't know. But at the very least, whatever we do, we need to be the church. Hopefully, you'll never, ever forget that. Let's pray. Father. Thank you for all that you are to us. Thank you for this special day where as five congregations coming together, we can celebrate uh, you in our midst. And God, I pray that really today would set the tone for where we need to go as a church that represents in a local way the church. And that God, we would never forget that we are the body of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. And that we, Lord, need to be set apart and pure, but it's meaningful as we are rabid about you, as we are unconditional in our love, as we are real with each other and then focused on our unity. God, use us as we focus on Jesus. Be pleased with us, we pray in Jesus' name. And we all say together.